very different part of history. Does that make sense? We take things that existed for us and we apply it to another situation. We, we can't help but go there. It's a knee-jerk reaction that we have. Um, so uh, when we hear the word slavery, every single one of us in this room, I promise you, immediately pictures in their head what? Chattel slavery, right? Like we can't help it. It's a knee-jerk reaction. Why? Because it left a scar on us. Like a for real scar. We, we, we can't help but immediately go to that picture. Um, it, it would be intellectually dishonest, though, to try to argue that chattel slavery only ever existed in 15th and 16th century America, right? You can go all the way back to Syrian civil codes and find that stuff. But, but chattel slavery is not the only kind of slavery that's ever existed. It's one category of slavery, right? And so even though we automatically think of that, it's not the only version of that, and it's not what's going on in Romans chapter 6 either. This is where the Bible comes into play. Paul talks about slavery here, but he's talking about a different type of slavery than the chattel slavery we all immediately think of. He's talking about a different type of slavery here. Um, he's talking about something that we would call indentured servitude. Or some of you may be more familiar with the term bond servant. The word indentured means a legal contract. It has to do with a legal binding contract. The word bond has the same meaning, right? And so it's a contractual obligation of servanthood. Um, and so most often, the bond servant was someone who entered into a legal contract to work uh, in exchange for something. And usually that something was to pay off debt. To pay off debt. Um, and so we're not talking about buying and selling people here. We're not talking about ripping people from their families and homes. We're not talking about chaining them up and putting them on a ship and selling them across a vast ocean. That's a terribly dark time in our history. It's just not what's going on in Romans 6. There's some, though, I think incorrectly, who would like to take the next step in that argument and try to argue that well, what's going on is just an ancient form of butlery. What you have was a willing person who chose to become subservient in order to you know, like have a good career path or something. It was all willful. Everything's okay. And they talk about how servants are often treated better in those days than in other times. And well, some of that stuff may actually be true. There's, there's scholarly stuff that we can point out and say, yeah, yeah, servants may have been better treated than, than like even family members in some cases. Like we can point to that. Sure. But the reality is, is that bond servants were under threat of something too, right? Like chattel slavery, they were under the threat of death. Bond servants, they were also under threat of something, right? Debt. They were under the threat of being thrown in jail for that debt. And so in the first century world, bond servanthood was, was a mechanism built into their culture of actively enslaving yourself for the purpose of paying down your debt. And it was somehow seen as a much better option than going off to debtor's prison and hanging out there until your family could pay off your stuff for you. Like that wasn't, somehow that was a worse option, and so they, they would actively enslave themselves, go into a legally binding contract to pay down their debt as a slave. So, what does all this have to do with Romans chapter 6? Right? Why do, we, why do we go down this rabbit trail? Because Paul says that submitting yourself to something does indeed make you a slave of that thing. It does indeed make you a slave of that thing. You have placed yourself, actively placed yourself in a position where you are bound to be obedient to it. 
You don't make decisions anymore because you're a slave. It's not your call. Slavery doesn't have to be something that was forced upon you. You can just as easily walk into it willingly. That's his point. Whether we're talking about chattel slavery or we're talking about indentured servitude, no matter how that process got started, once you've submitted yourself to that thing, Paul says you're a slave to it. An actual slave to that thing. We said last week that that we return to our sin over and over and over again. Why? Because we actually love it. We, we want more of it. We, we want it. We're like codependent lovers who think that this time, oh, this time it'll be different. This time it'll all be better. This time it'll actually give me what I was hoping for, even though every single time it ruins us. That's enslavement. Doesn't matter how willing you are, right? It's enslavement. Remember the whole bondage of the will thing we talked about a few weeks ago? But the gospel, the good news is that those who by grace through faith have been transferred from team Adam to team Jesus, those who were crucified with Christ is no longer they who live, but Christ who lives in them, they have been set Free, the gospel says. That the gospel is that they have been set free from their old master and transferred to a brand new one. Wait, what? We've been, we've been, we've been transferred to a new slave master? I, Stephen, I don't think you know how this works. Right? So, slavery bad, freedom good. We want freedom. Right? We don't want to go back to the slavery thing. Like that, that, that's, that, that's not how the game works. No, we are, we are set free, right? We, we don't want more slavery. We, slavery was the bad thing. We all had our Shawshank redemption moment. We crawled through the muck and the mire. And we ripped our shirts open. And we're like, yeah, freedom. But Paul says here in Romans 6, Paul says here in Romans 6 that you will inevitably be a slave to something because you will always ultimately submit yourself to something. That something could be a million different things. It could be wealth. It could be power. It could be fame. It could be things that we put in the negative category like, like, uh, like sex or drugs or pornography. It could be seemingly neutral things or even good things that we twist or we malign or we elevate beyond their, their overemphasize beyond their purpose like your family or your education or maybe even your work ethic. It could be any kinds of things. I'll just be honest. It could even be yourself. Your own exalted sense of yourself. You ever counted how many times you use the, the term self-care? Like on its face, that's a good thing, but the second it tips over into being something that you use as a trump card to get you out of the other healthy things in your life, you've submitted to something, haven't you? You've elevated that something to be the idol. Paul says that you are going to submit yourself to Something. And that something is either sin or it's obedience. That's something. You will, you will be a slave to either your sin, which leads to death, or he says you will be a slave to obedience, which leads to righteousness. It's one or the other. Bank on it. But there's a gigantic problem that we all face in here this morning. Because a single-sided view of slavery is not the only faulty belief that we all carried in here. There's another one that's 
goes back much further. An inherited belief that goes back much, much, much further. And is significantly more dangerous. See, the knee-jerk tendency of every single one of us in here, myself included, is to hear Paul's words here and completely forget that he has spent the last five and a half chapters laying out the reality of the Gospel. Right? I mean, we've, we've spent weeks talking about this, but the second we start talking about sin or obedience, what are you going to choose? We immediately go to works-based effort to please God. Don't we? It's in us. The natural bent in every single one of us is to just kind of effortlessly drift into a damnable works-based understanding of what it means to please God. We go there because it's natural to us. It's not just the Pharisees that are guilty of this stuff. It's the American way. The human way. But what's so crazy, insane about this logic though is that it doesn't ever work. Even though we all kind of naturally fall into that rut, it doesn't actually ever accomplish what we hope it will accomplish. Uh, the Bible teaches that we can't please God with anything that ever originates out of us. Not one bit. Even though it's buried deep down in our nature to fall back into this over and over and over again, the Gospel begins by claiming that our best effort on our best day will always, and I mean always, fall short of God's glory. We've even discussed on multiple occasions throughout this series that left to our own devices, we don't even want to please Him. It's not in us. It's not attracted to us, attracted to us because our hearts are corrupted all the way down by our sin to the very core of who we are. And so if that's the case, then how in the world, like seriously, what is Paul thinking here? How in the world are we ever actually going to pull off, quote, submitting ourselves to obedience like Paul calls us to here? Well, Paul's actually a step ahead of us. Look at verse 17. But. It's just a three-letter word. But it is one of the biggest three-letter words ever, isn't it? Some of the coolest, most amazing verses in the Bible have the word but somewhere in there, either at the very beginning or somewhere slapped right in the middle, and it changes everything. Listen, I know that the circumstances look bleak. I know that all the news is bad. I know that things are falling apart around you, but I know that it seems like all hope is lost, but God is doing something big for you. Everything is about to change because God is working. What's He doing? Look at verse 17 again. But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the what? From the heart to the standard of teaching of which, uh, to which you were committed. And having been set free from sin have become slaves of righteousness. Okay, so what changes? The heart changes, right? The heart changes. This is what he says. Those who have died to sin have been raised to the newness of life, have been given a heart of flesh instead of a heart of stone that Ezekiel liked to talk about all those centuries before. They have, they have God's law, His good commands written on their hearts rather than on tablets of stone externally like Jeremiah and the writer of Hebrews likes to celebrate. Something has 
changed. And that something is not something you did. It's something God did. He gave you a new heart. He gave you a new heart. I don't care what kind of willpower you think that you bring to the table. We're talking about something that exists outside of the category of your accomplishment. You can't do this. Jesus tells Nicodemus in John chapter 3, that which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is what? Spirit. Outside of spiritual rebirth, to quote Jesus, you will never see the kingdom of God. You'll never see it. And so if you try to take what Paul is saying here and and run with it down the road of religious self-help, if you try to hold up what he's saying here with our culture's sensibilities of just try a little harder, Jimmy, and you'll get yourself somewhere someday. And you're going to crash and burn. You will fail. Why? Because without that new heart, you are spiritually incapable of succeeding. The Bible teaches. But but then there's that praise be to God part. Right? Praise be to God. You have been set free, he tells us. Follower of Jesus, you play for a different team now. You swap jerseys, you're facing the other direction. You're on a brand new side. Your objective has changed because you now have a different calling. Because the old you was crucified with Christ, you are now a fundamentally different person than who you once were. Look at verse 19 now. I am speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations. For just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity, members, he's there, he's talking about uh, the pieces that make you up, the parts of you. All right, just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to what? Righteousness leading to sanctification. All right, so Paul says he's speaking in human terms here. So what does that mean? He's. It, He's acknowledging that his analogy does break down eventually. The the slavery in the illustration doesn't go all the way to the end because it eventually breaks down. But, well, now that I've acknowledged that, I'm going to press in one more time with the slavery picture. That's what he says. Those who belong by faith to Jesus, you have been rescued from slavery to sin and what sin produces, lawlessness, but you have just as much been rescued to something. You have been rescued to slavery of obedience to God. A glorious, willing slavery to righteousness and what righteousness produces. Sanctification. Sanctification was something we talked about last week. Remember? God's lifelong process of making you look more and more and more like the One who saved you. More and more like Jesus. That's sanctification. It's going to take your whole life. You are declared righteous. That is justification. Sanctification is the beast that comes after that as you slowly turn in to look more and more like your King. Paul's going to pick up that leading to logic he just threw out there. Run with it a little bit further. Look at verse 20. For when you were slaves of sin, 
you were free in regard to righteousness. But what fruit were you getting at that time from the things of which you are now ashamed? For the end of those things is what? Alright, so he says, back when you were slave to sin, you were free from righteousness. It was, it was foreign to you. It had no bearing. It was unappealing to you. Uh, but then Paul asks the question, but what were you getting out of that? What fruit was that producing? What's the answer? Death. Mmm, tasty, tasty fruit, that death. Especially when it's ripe. Okay, what do we do with that? When we talk about the justice of God on sin, something that you cannot ignore within the book of Romans, right? That's the reason why we name this thing just and justifier. Right? So when you talk about the, the, the punishment of God, uh, the justice of God on sin, um, we talk about, you spend a lot of time discussing punishment, right? Um, because punishment is deserved for sin. Like it's, it's earned, it's, it's merited, it's, it's deserved for sin. It's what it's owed. And that's a piece of the gospel that if you were to somehow try to leave that out, you may not actually be talking about the gospel anymore. At least it's not the way that the Bible presents it. It's a, it's a necessary key component of the gospel message that sin deserves death. In fact, Paul's going to take us back to that logic in verse 23 here in a little bit. It's going to come right back to the we need to talk about what sin is owed part. But before we get back to that, before we get back to that, we need to see here that sin doesn't simply merit death. Paul tells us here that sin actually produces death. Like a fruit. On a tree. Paul's point here is that Sin will always continue to produce more sin. Always. It produces lawlessness. It produces death. We, we quoted Jesus several minutes ago in John chapter 3, right? That which is born of the flesh is flesh. It continues to reproduce itself. It continues to snowball on itself. That sin produces lawlessness and death. And speaking to the gathered church in Rome, Paul says that that we look back on that season with shame. Shame is not a word that falls softly on modern ears, is it? Like We typically try to avoid shame. We have no problem shaming others, but we never want shame pointed at us, right? We do everything in our power to avoid it ourselves. Even up so much to the point of actually lying about our past because we desperately don't want people to know who we really are. Right? We'll do everything we can to cover up the shameful bits of us. Shame is tragic. But there's also that, that fun little three-letter word that we've been celebrating in, don't we? The word but. Paul drops another bomb in verse 22. But the end of those things is death, verse 22. But now. Can we just celebrate the but now part? Sin leads to sin. Sin leads to lawlessness. Sin leads to death. It, it leads to shame. Everything is falling apart around us. All looks like we are without hope and everything is lost. But now, but now, Paul says, you have been set free from sin and become slaves of God. The fruit you get leads to sanctification. And its end is what? Eternal 
life. While sin produces lawlessness and death, grace-fueled righteousness produces eternal life. Life existing forever. Sin always leads to more sin, but righteousness leads to deeper and deeper righteousness. He says, and those who have been set free by the finished work of Jesus on the cross on their behalf have a brand new master, a better master, an eternally loving and perfectly good master. But we also have one more verse this morning, don't we? Verse 23. Those of you who grew up memorizing the Romans road, you've heard this before. Paul says, for the wages of sin is death, but... The free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Alright, so wages are a thing that you've earned, right? Like that, That's what it means. It's something that you've earned. And we normally, we, we use this term when we're talking about pay. You go to work, you do your job well, you don't like do dumb stuff on the job, and you deserve to get paid. You have earned a wage, right? right that's what a wage is. And so in, in that moment, if your boss tried to like undercut you and not pay you after you've worked faithfully for them, that's... That's injustice right there. To not pay you what you deserve is an unjust, an unjust act. Because you deserve it. It is owed to you because you fulfilled what you were supposed to do. A wage is a positive thing in most circumstances that shows that we have rightfully earned to get paid for the good thing that we did. The wage can also be used in the negative sense, can it? You can rightly, justly earn punishment for the negative thing. I mean, think about any kind of jail sentence you've ever heard of. They did the crime. They do the... <laughs> got you all to say that. All right. You can earn a negative wage. It's owed to you. And if in that moment, the one responsible for doling out that wage doesn't act appropriately, it's an unjust act. It goes back to that just and justifier thing we talked about a while ago, right? The one who is perfectly just must, in order to be consistent with their character, must dole out perfect justice. A wage has been earned for good or for nil. The wages, the thing justly, rightly, actually owed for sin is death. Separation for God from God forever. It's deserved. If, if God were to withhold it, He would be acting unjustly. But our boy Paul has one last three-letter word for us, doesn't he? But the free gift of God is what? Eternal life, right? In Christ Jesus our Lord. Um, gifts and wages are fundamentally different things. They're in different categories altogether. Uh, gifts cannot be earned. The second they're earned, they're no longer a gift. It's a wage. Alright? They're on polar ends of the spectrum there. Uh, the Greek word for the word uh, gift there is the word charisma. We use that word in English a lot, right? They have charisma. It's a gifting that they have, right? And so the Greek word here is charisma. The root word is charis. You see charis all over the New Testament. It's translated as grace. Charis, C-H-A-R-I-S, is how you spell it in English, is where we get our English word charity from. The charity of God, the grace of God, the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. 
Left to our own devices, we will always earn death. But the charity of God is eternal life. So that leads us to a watershed question, doesn't it? Have you trusted in the work of Jesus to pay the debt of your sin? It's a black and white question, whether you realize it or not. Have you trusted in the work of Jesus to pay the debt of your sin? Have you called on Him as Lord to save you? Or have you surrounded yourself with a big old long list, a string out, strung out list of just try a little harder, Jimmy? A bunch of religious actions that this world seems to be so fond of. Pass off as Christ-likeness. We're all a slave to something. It's either good King Jesus or something less appealing than Him when you actually weigh Him out. Something that will ultimately fail you and lie to you and yes, ruin you. Because it will lead to death. Whenever God's Word is declared, it it ought to be responded to. And so if you're here this morning, you can respond, and you don't know Jesus yet. If you're here this morning, you don't know Jesus yet. You can respond to, to God's Word this morning by meeting Jesus. That, that's how this works. You repent of sin, and you call on Him in faith. In a second, I'm going to pray, and we're going to sing. I'll be down front here. If you want somebody to walk you through what that means and what that looks like and what those steps are, I'd be happy to do it. But you respond to God's Word this morning by meeting Jesus if you don't know Him yet. If you're here this morning and you're already a follower of Jesus, how do you respond to His Word? It's the same, same way you respond every single week. You, you press into God through repentance of sin and through celebrating what He's revealed about Himself in Romans chapter 6. Right? That, that's what we do every single week. It doesn't change because that's what the purpose of the church is. He is the one who sets you free. Sets you free to then again, immediately after that, be forever lost again in His goodness and His grace. You are saved to the eternal joy of being a kingdom citizen forever. Under a good, wise, gracious, lovely king. Today in part, oh, but one day in full. Or that song that we sang earlier proclaimed, when he comes, our glorious king, all his ransomed home to bring, then anew this song we'll sing. Hallelujah! What a Savior. I'm going to pray. We're going to sing. Let's all respond to God's Word as God is calling you to this morning. Father, You're good to us. Thank You for the Scriptures. Thank You for Romans 6. God, I tend to, to leave out the, the best half of the Gospel. Yes, we are saved from ourselves, saved from the debt that we owe, saved from the punishment of our sin, but oh, joyfully so, we are saved to a new slavery. A slavery that finds its rest in the good slave master. The one who has purchased us for himself by dying himself. You laid down your life for those you loved and would call your own. You did what was necessary to purchase your bride for yourself. You came. You lived sinlessly. 
who died on the cross and were raised again to build Your kingdom. And so for those of us in here who have been united to You in Your death, and yes, joyfully united to You now in our, Your resurrection life, would You call us to, to repentance this morning? Call us to more closely align our hearts and our actions with who You would have us to be. As You continue to sanctify us and cleanse us and make us into looking more and more like Yourself, would You call us to heal? But also call us to rest. Because You are the One who did what was ultimately necessary. Before You call us to A or B, You have first saved us. So God, would You draw us closer this morning? For those in here who don't know You yet, would You awaken eyes to see, ears to hear, and hearts to know? Would You make Yourself known to people in this room today? And would they be forever changed by it? Would You save people for the glory of Your name today? breathe new life into us. We celebrate you well. Help us respond faithfully this morning. In Jesus' name, amen.